Welcome to Series 3 of the Chill Podcast, We Are Chill. Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise, and we are excited to share our experiences with you of when we hosted an intergenerational dinner this past summer. So this past June, June of 2023, we invited 40 people to dinner at a beautiful home in Heber, Utah. Thank you, Dina and Brian Merrill, for hosting us. On their beautiful patio, we overlooked a beautiful mountain valley that was surrounded by both the Wasatch and the Uinta Mountain Ranges. And while doing so, our 40 guests entered, introduced themselves, enjoyed hors d'oeuvres and drinks, and then we sat down for dinner. We had six round tables and each table had a table host to facilitate the conversation and one representative from each of the six generations. Every table had a Gen Zer, every table had a millennial, a Gen Xer, a baby boomer, and someone from the so-called silent generation, someone 74 years or older. But I can tell you, the representative at my table did not agree that her generation was silent. (laughs) or at least that silent did not resonate with her. Anyway, at the table, the conversations focused on very specific questions. The unique perspectives and experiences that were shared by the individuals at each table inspired intergenerational creativity, and it helped us honor the wisdom of all ages. These people, who in large part had never met each other before, found the structure of the focus conversations facilitated connections in themselves that were so sustaining, as sustaining as the beautiful, delicious meal that they were sharing together. In the following four episodes, we have follow-up conversations with five of our guests who volunteered to join our chill team at the Worthful Media Podcast Studio in Salt Lake City just a few days after our event. We have a great time sharing stories from the event and perspectives and interpretations. And this process of conversation really helps us to process what we experienced and honor what we learned at this beautiful intergenerational dinner. Please enjoy. Good morning, Mark and Christine. Hello. Good morning. Um, Let's start by having you tell us your names and a little bit about yourself in relationship to your generation. Okay, should I start? I will. Absolutely. Uh, My name's Christine Baird. I am a millennial born in 1987, so right on on the mark. I live in Salt Lake City now, but I've sort of lived all over the country like a classic millennial. I've moved many times. I'm in my third career already. So I love being a millennial. I've been sort of deeply associated with that my whole life, Um, but now in my mid-30s. It's interesting because I'm starting to get a new take on it. So it's really fun to think about that in context of the generations around me. I'm curious about the new take on it, but maybe you'll tell (laughs) us about that a little later. (laughs) The big reveal. Okay. And I'm Mark. I um, smack dab in the middle of the boomers. One of the interesting things when we were talking in in our group is everybody at my table really did not like being defined in that way. And uh, they had various ways of expressing what that was. So we spent considerable time talking about that. And they felt like labels always bring miscommunication Hmm. and misperception. So that was one of the first takeaways at the dinner. All of them, everybody. Everybody. Absolutely everybody. We had a Gen Z, a millennial, 
a Gen X, a boomer, and a silent generation at the table. Did and your silent generation member re not like being a silent generation? Oh yes, yes. Yeah. She said, she said, there's nothing about me that is silent. Yeah. And we met for the first time because I drove her up to the uh, event and um, she, she's quite loquacious <laughs> and, uh, and just a just fabulous human being who is a very, um, she's fought her whole life for individuation and independence, so yeah. Yeah, my SG representative also didn't like it and I heard that from another interview and so I think they, they all say, I'm not silent. Yeah. <laughs> So, mm -hmm. so we looked it up to find out that you know it's about them being growing up in the depression and uh, and McCarthyism that you know they they were coming of age during McCarthyism when they didn't they maybe didn't feel it was safe to speak mm -hmm. so maybe they're silent about politics mm -hmm. you know and I think that's what it's referring to yeah but I don't think any of those people were saying that they were saying I speak my mind so. Absolutely. I was particularly interested to interview you two because you were facilitators at so the chill women and then you two as facilitators. And so I was curious about your experience as facilitators. So the first question of our interviews is, can you give us the event from your perspective, sort of describe it in a way? but. If you could wind in the fact that you were a facilitator as you arrive at the event and do whatever you're doing and sit down and all of that, I think that'd be great. I always like to, especially upon reflection, I like to make meaning of what I experienced. And um, I love the fact that we had to drive to get to the Merrill's house because it was like this coming together required various groups and ages to travel to arrive at this opportunity. It was like passing through a threshold mm -hmm. to speak to one another. And it was great walking around and saying, wow, they did a fantastic job of getting a nice cross-section of, of ages. And um, there was a there lovely representation of humanity, I guess is the best way I'd like to describe it. And the facilitating for me was was incredibly easy because everybody was not shy at, at speaking and and, and sharing uh, their experiences. So I like to talk. So my goal was facilitate, don't in, interject too much. But the environment was outstanding. The the food was nice, and everything just congeal to uh, allow people to feel comfortable and in productive ways. Yeah, I felt the same. I didn't understand why we were driving all the way to Heber to do this dinner, which I think for everyone almost was a long drive. But once I arrived and was in an environment that was very separate from living in the middle of the city or wherever people came from, it absolutely helped us focus on what we were there for. And I think one of my favorite parts about being a facilitator was no one at the table knew each other. Like it, at our table, at least, it was an absolute clean slate. And I felt 
so lucky to have this facilitation role because I didn't have to think about like, does anyone have existing relationships? Am I catching up? Am I trying to make sure that someone's, it was this beautiful opportunity that I've never had before to sit at a table where I purposefully was different than everyone else and no one knew each other. And we were there for a common purpose in this beautiful situation that was away from our normal lives that had required us to, you know, not just hop in the car and 10 minutes later, rush into something. And so I think like looking at the facilitator questions and knowing what my role was, I'm a lot like Mark, I could talk forever, but that wasn't my role. And it was such a privilege to make sure that a space was being created for listening, which is really what you had set up. But that was my role as a facilitator to make sure that I was honoring the intention that we're here to listen. And it was just the coolest that everyone got to answer the same question because there was time for everyone. Everything was unhurried. People could talk for a while. They could talk for not a long time. And we all were just so overjoyed to hear everyone's response to every question. Like there wasn't a single person that you're like, oh, I don't want to hear their response. Like, no, didn't even cross anyone's mind because everyone had something really valuable to add purely by the fact that they were alive and had lived whatever amount of life they had lived. And so it's a joyful facilitation experience because I was conscious that I was there for a reason. I was making sure that there was a flow and there wasn't time being wasted with people wondering what we were supposed to be doing. But I pulled out of my normal mode of like, I'm just going to have a great time and chat with people. And I just got to listen, which is so joyful because everyone there was ready to share. And that was such a cool, cool experience. I've been part of lots of group exercises, but very rarely have I been part of one where everyone had opted in of their own accord. I'm here to share about my life perspective and I'm being qualified just means that I have lived the amount of years I've lived. It was so cool. I did have one participant who, when we were, we were going to share our accordion books, our first, our three impressions. And um, she was sitting to my right and we went this way. And so she, she, I heard her saying to the person next to her, I'm like, I'm not having any And then this person shared and this person, she got, she's totally interested and she got more and more. And, and by the time it got to her, she just whipped out her accordion book and just shared. It was really, it was really cool. Yeah, really. I noticed some of that too, because I was trying to make sure everyone felt comfortable. Everyone was impacted by the example set by the person who spoke before them. It was just, unspoken but very powerful we were inspired by each other to open up and i was very aware that there were collectives at each table that had their own little community but it was all part of a much larger whole that it was whole parts do you mean uh, like christine said that nobody at her table knew each other at your table were there people who knew each other previously well i i knew dallin and I had just, you know, spent, you know, close to an hour in the car driving up with Kate. So, you know, I had a little bit of, but everybody else, nobody else knew one another at all. So it was a, it was a whole coming together. But I just had this sense that we immediately kind of bonded at each table 
and I got that sense that was going on. But then there was a much larger, I appreciated doing the, um, the movement sort of conclusion because I think that brought everyone back together mm-hmm. in a meaningful way that allowed yeah. the, you know. There was that little like, oh, table six is going to go on a cruise together. And <laughs> I saw Heather with, you know, yeah. taking a selfie of her group. I thought, oh, it's my phone's in my purse, which I put in the bedroom. And, you know, and it was yeah. like, does my group like each other enough? Are we having as, you know, <laughs> so that did sort of, there sure. was a little bit of that. Yeah. And then I think getting up did mix it up again. When we arrived, so one one of the things that I always have to talk myself into is working a cocktail party. You know, it's like, it's the 30 minutes and it's the hors d'oeuvre time and I would much rather find somebody and then lock onto them and just, but I knew I wasn't supposed to do that. Plus, I had that little sheet Mm-hmm. that said, you know, who the generations are, and three or four questions. And that really helped me. And people were supposed to sign it if you talked to them. So I would, you know, I'd go up to somebody and say, would you sign my sheet? And then that was, it was nice to have those kinds of expectations. So I was just wondering if you had, you know, what's your beginning, that first 30 minutes? Well, the, the protocols were excellent for the entire evening, I felt. And that gave everybody a, you arrived, and it's like, okay, what do we do? Oh, here, okay, now I have a reason to, we all have a reason to come up and go, hi, I don't know you, who are you? And that broke the ice and it kind of set up, you know, it was almost, oh, now we have to go to the table. Oh, now we're at the table. Oh, now we have to, wait, we'll wait, you know. So it was, I thought it was timed well, and it was, yeah, the opening was terrific. That's so cool to hear because we got stuck in traffic and missed the first 30 minutes. Oh. We literally walked in maybe five minutes before everyone moved to their tables. And so I had come with my husband. He was assigned to a different table. We sort of walked in, grabbed a drink, and then it was pretty much time to sit down. And I really wondered. I was a little worried as a facilitator, like, oh, no, maybe I've missed something. I should have you know, spent more time. But the magic was you had this amazing experience. I had an amazing experience walking in cold and sitting down at a table. And I, I bet it's because of the energy that was already created by people who'd been there. And the fact that it was, you're right, human nature. So many of us feel like I am supposed to make small talk and be someone I'm not. But that was not the experience because this was... Again, I thought it was so cool that my invitation to this dinner had nothing to do with anything except that I had been alive for 30-something years. Like, I was qualified in a way I'd never been in any other social situation, and it was really special, and it really put me at ease. And I think I sensed that from the other members in my table because we I had not talked to a single one of them before we sat down. I missed the whole opening. Yeah, I, I think the protocol's worked really well too and the gen z member of my table said you know i've had lots of intergenerational experiences because my family is totally intergenerational so every time we have a family dinner it's an intergenerational but she said it's never been explicit or you know this this really gave you a way to be something yeah (laughs) so she she really appreciated that and i did too it it 
it's something about the explicitness or maybe the intentionality that made it easier to be there. It, yeah. it was like there were rules that were very loose. <laughs> well, and that we had all signed on to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had chosen, you know, like, like a big family dinner. Mm-hmm. You don't always get to choose no, to don't. be there. No, <laughs> You've been recruited to be there. Yeah. Well, could you tell us about, now that we kind of have a sense of what happened, I think we painted it pretty well. Was there something that you heard during the course of the evening that surprised you? Yeah, the first thing I heard that surprised me, the member at our table who is from Generation X, Jennifer, we were answering the first question, which was along the lines of what generation are you from? What does that mean to you? And what are the misconceptions that you think people have about your generation? And Jennifer just shared, well, I was born in 1970, and I think it was the most idyllic time I could have ever been born. I had the most wonderful childhood growing up in the 70s and 80s was so cool. Technology hadn't advanced too much to be a distraction, but there was all this fun life and art and culture and socialization. And I had never, ever heard that from someone her age. She was in her 50s, and I just realized, like, I didn't know that about growing up in the 70s and 80s. Like, how cool that she was just joyful and grateful. And, you know, she'd raised kids of her own, so she'd seen people go through a whole other growing up time, and she had a lot to compare it to. And she was just so happy about having had the childhood and the growing up years she did. And I had never heard anyone, like, from my perspective, I mostly hear about the 70s and 80s being kind of like a hot mess and everyone was like freaking out and having an identity crisis and it made cool art, but also it was hard. (laughs) And that was so not her take on it. And it was just so cool to hear that. And I, it made me so happy. Like, I'm so glad that that happened because I was before my time. I didn't get here until 1987. Well, there was a beautiful aha that happened. We were talking about things that are surprising about your generation and our silent generation, our, my octogenarian, was talking about how you get to a certain age and you feel very silent, or you feel that you're being silenced, that people don't see you. Uh, she was talking about a recent health scare and issues she was dealing with, and even in the medical industry coming in and they're looking at her and doing the tests and things and and she's basically being treated but well you've already had a great life they're going wait i have a lot more living that i would like to to do and and feeling like i'm just being placed on a shelf and not knowing where i fit in and how to interact is is really hard and my millennial said oh my gosh i'd never made that connection he said, because I think my generation that, you know, when especially when I was in my 20s, that's exactly how I felt. And I didn't have my voice yet. And so isn't it interesting to see that spiral that it comes back around? And she was saying, yes, a life is a spiral. And, you know, hopefully you're ascending in that spiral. And the whole group went, whoa, you know, <laughs> it was it was a lovely moment. Yeah. That is so cool. It reminded me one other of my favorite moments that really I wrote this down in my accordion notebook when we were on the second question talking about 
do you have friends who are 10, 20, 30 years older than you or younger than you? Like, do you have friends, why or why not, that are in different generations? When Karma, who's 91, who is our representative from the silent generation, she just said in the most beautiful, crystal clear, confident way, if you were a friend, you were a friend. Like, like it had never occurred to her a moment in her 91 years that there would be a qualification that you needed to be somewhere in the same age range to be a friend. And she had shared with us that she had born in the early 1930s, like grew up in, you know, kind of farming towns in Utah and just had this beautiful perspective on life, just this real joie de vivre that was so awesome and cool. And it was just so clear for her. I think she was one of the last ones to share for that question. So everyone else had kind of spoken. And then she just said, if you're a friend, you're a friend. I never thought about the age of anyone that I knew who was a friend. And I was like, well, that's going to be my motto going forward. One of the things that came up in ours was my octogenarian was talking about feeling young and being perceived as old. She said, and I'm not an old biscuit. You know, (laughs) it was really... It was really fun. And then we started talking about the fact that our society has designed ageism Mm -hmm. in and how it's so non-human species Mm -hmm. to put people, but our school system is set up that way. And, you know, we we do it. It's like you go to war with the other 17 to 22 year olds and we build it in so that people think that normal is being with your age group rather than normal is being with an expanded group. And I was really interested in that. It's like it made these dinners or things like them reaching across generations seem really important to undo the, we want to redesign the misdesign of separating the generations and let them Sort of like in school, you know, you think of a toddler as a natural learning machine. Then they go to school and they get it sort of bred out of them because of Mm -hmm. all the linearity. And I think we're natural connecting machines. And we just set it up so that we can't. And then we get all these biases and stereotypes. I just had a thought that so much of my pressure I put on myself to appear successful only really occurs when I'm talking to my peer group. Like if someone's within about 10 years of my age, I feel an extra set of pressure to appear like things are going well, for example, professionally. Versus when I'm chatting with someone maybe 20 years older than me or younger than me, there's like this weight off me, like they'll get it. Like either they're younger than me in a point where they think I've got it, that I'm just you know, in a whole other realm, or they're so much older than me that they know that everything I'm worried about is not that big of a deal and it'll all work out. But I didn't put that together until you just said that, that I find this invisible pressure I've put upon myself. It's very hard for me to be vulnerable about something I'm struggling with if I'm talking to a peer, unless it's like a super trusted friend where we have years of investment that it's okay, you know. And I don't feel that way with people who have a lot more life experience than me or maybe are earlier on because I just, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, they'll get it. That whole heterogeneity thing, it's like heterogeneity bonds us rather than, it's like when we're too much alike, then we compete. Yes. Um, It's like, wait, I've got to muscle my space in in here. i got to make room for me. Yeah. 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 And our 
or Gen Z really echoed that and said that part of the social media stuff mm -hmm. that really exacerbates that issue and concern of, you know, how am I doing in comparison to my group? And everybody else seems to be getting ahead. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter. It's just a perception. Another great highlight was um, when the millennials said, my generation really suffers from option paralysis. Huh. And everybody kind of resonated with that in the, the Gen Z went, oh, yeah, <laughs> option. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's so, you know, what do you do? How do you choose? What do you call out from everything it could possibly do and everything that's coming at you and everything seems so fast and trying to find a way of slowing down and, and being focused and centered and remembering what you want and where you're going is difficult. So then the octogenarian said, yeah, Ed, but you have to do that. We were pushed in that regard, but you get to make that choice. She well, said, in my, that's one way to see it. <laughs> yeah, she said, in my life, I didn't feel like I had that many choices. Mm. That I was always fighting upstream against pushing the constraints that were being you know, pushed upon me. She said, so everything comes with a blessing and a curse. Which sounds like age. <laughs> that sounds like the wisdom of age, yeah. not necessarily the wisdom of a generation. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I do think those two things get confounded a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, the 30-year-old thinks, oh, I'm, I'm the generation I am, but it may just be that I'm 30. Yeah. And that when we were 30, you know, when I was... 18 and trying to figure out what my major was in college. I it seemed like there were too many choices But oh. I do think the pressure of these smart devices and the access to the entire world of information just Has you know and these kids are kids, you know, and they're just trying to have to well and educationally. We're going. still teaching information we're still teaching to the, you know, here's the textbook, here's the questions that you're going to, rather than going, how do we learn how to form questions? Mm -hmm. How do we learn to navigate the complexity of the world around us and make sense of this wealth of information that we have? So that makes it even more challenging. Yeah. So I was thinking about how it's so important to be taught how to search for information because otherwise you get caught you know I'm not searching this is how I do it you know and I always get then the algorithm sets you up to get the same information and then once you search broadly then you have to select you know is this written by somebody who doesn't know anything in his basement pretending to be a or is this actual information that's credible and and we don't teach that we do scripted Everybody in the district has to be on the same page in the textbook at the same time. I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, we really, it, education has, has got to figure out that we don't teach information like we used to. That's well, just not the thing. We have such access to information. I mean, it worked beautifully even when I was growing up. You got enough information in a particular area that you were interested in, and you could have a career. Mm -hmm. Well... And as Christine said, just said, she's on her third career, you know, and she's probably going to have a couple more. I hope so. <laughs> and that, that's what I tell my, what I used to tell my students. You're going to have three and four careers. So if you 
keep following your dream and allowing your life to unfold so it becomes your creative work of art, you know, rather than trying to meet these external expectations. And it just puts me so at ease to hear you say that 20 whatever years down the line. I'm like, oh, see, that's why I love to hear it from someone who validates the perspective. I think I spend a lot of time with my peer group being in our mid-30s. I do think a lot about how this is just normal for everybody in their mid-30s. Part of it is that we're rethinking, like, is this the career I want to be doing? I've been in it for, you know, over 10 years. Do I feel like I'm contributing value? Um, I'm looking for more meaning. And I realize that's probably just normal for being at this stage. But there's another layer to what you both were just speaking about where this abundance of access to every other possible option via the internet is just overwhelming. And there's been times where I've had to pull myself back from what I call the abyss of like existential, like, oh, I could do anything, but I can't do anything. And just say, okay, for the next couple of years, you're just going to focus on the thing in front of you and build it and see what it becomes. Because if I let myself entertain all the things, especially now that I have some skills and I have some experience that, you know, I'm easily hireable at this point in my career, it will just, you know, blow my brain. I'll just, um, and instead I've just spent the last couple of years trying to focus on the moment I'm in. I sunsetted all my social media accounts last year. I was like, we're going to just take a pause from that because for all the reasons you stated, it was becoming unhelpful. And I am just kind of taking a different pace. And I think that that's been a powerful choice I made. And it, was mostly inspired by people I talked to who were 20, 30 years down the line from me who were like, listen, you're fine. You're doing great. It's all going to work out. Like do the path you're on for a while. And it was just, I needed to have that perspective because if I had stayed too focused in my own kind of peer group mind, it could have just eaten me alive to be comparing myself constantly decide was that the right choice maybe i should have gone this way i could have done five different things it's the path i'm on so i've really been thinking about the value of intergenerational perspective because so, it's keeping me going so if it is so beneficial and i think everyone at the dinner felt like it was and we all feel like it is and that's one thing and it's designed for us not to be intergenerational, to stay in our cohorts and stick in our age lanes and all of that. What are your ideas? I mean, this is one way we did it. Are there ways we could have done it better? Are there other ways that you think of? I was thinking of the fact that faith communities are pretty much the only natural intergenerational communities we have left. Yeah. And it's like, okay, how can we, and, and people's commitment and belonging to faith communities is decreasing in most places. I don't know if it is in Utah, but so what, what do we do to make this more possible and easier fit? That's an excellent question. I, I really, I, cause I've pondered that since the, since the dinner and I, I really lack ideas for that. Because I thought, well, this is a great way of doing that. I, I walked away. The next morning, I was really struck by 
how fortunate I've been of having so many communities in my life. Now, my mom came from a, a large family, had three brothers and two sisters, and they all had at least three children. And her family all lived within a 45-minute area of one another. And we, my family was the outlier. So when we would go there, it was an occasion everybody would get together. And so Christmas and summer, you know, I had, would have 15, 20 cousins to play with and hang out with. And, and it was in North Louisiana, so there were the woods and there was the, you know, the lake and all of those things. And my grandparents were, my granddad knew when to pull me aside and bring me along. And he was never particularly strict, but he, you know, let me know things that were important. And I felt all of that. And when I got into dance, being in a dance company for, you know, 15 years, you're a family. And we used to laugh and joke and say, one year in a dance company is like three years in regular life because it's so intense and it's always ongoing. And, you know, we perform sometimes 160, 180 times a year. And so, and that was during the time when we were the dance touring program. And so we were on tour three months out of the year. And the emotional social interaction is, it's like a graduate school. You know, you, you walked away from that. And I, so, and then teaching, you know, being on a faculty, you have to navigate all that stuff, but especially the students. It's such a rich interchange, as you well know, Lois. But I think we're losing some of that. And, and that, that concerns me. Because, you know, those, like the book, uh, Alone Together, you know, the social media was supposed to bring us more opportunities to interact. And I see my grandniece and nephew sitting next to each other, and rather than talking, they're texting. And that concerns me. I think one of the ways that I've realized I can connect intergenerationally is by investing in my actual community, which is new for me because for the first 12 years of my adult life, I was just moving in apartments from city to city, just not a thought in the world to meet my next door neighbors. I was having fun living in big cities, apartment life, not connected away from family. And when I kind of actively decided to move out of Los Angeles, which is where I lived before uh, my current home in Salt Lake City, I decided to move to a much smaller city. I decided to kind of, I got married. We moved into a more traditional neighborhood. I met my neighbors. I started reading the community newsletter. I go to my library, volunteer for the annual community fair. There's something very different that's happening for me now because I'm actually getting to know the people I live around. And it's so cool because most of them are from another generation than me or it's, it's a whole mix. And that is something I've realized is so valuable because I didn't have it for about 12 years when I was college, young in my profession, just having fun running around with my own friends in my 20s. And that's one way I've realized is actually investing in my community. And I think as a society, we're realizing how essential that is for the future of our actual culture to be connected on a local level. But another thing I've noticed is going to arts experiences that are open to the community, whether they're ticketed or not, is actually one of my best ways to mix with multiple generations. When um, I go to the symphony, it's very intergenerational. It's so cool. And maybe we're not chatting with everyone around us, but 
it's so powerful to go to music concerts, art exhibits, food events, community events that are around the arts, I think is one of my easiest ways to interact intergenerationally. Going to the farmer's market, chatting with the vendors, it's this local community focus that I've realized at this point in my life is essential if I'm going to have intergenerational perspective outside of family. And that is new for me because that wasn't my mindset in my 20s or in my teenage years. But there are two things that you did. One is you realized you wanted yes. to have intergenerational community. Yeah. And then you realized that you had a neighborhood yeah and that you could turn it into a community or be yeah. by beginning to participate in the community aspects of that neighborhood i love this idea of going to the farmers market i'm also remembering last year when we were here we went to that dance yes event completely and that was an amazing intergenerational yeah. the kids were running on the dance floor and the old timers were yes. incredible dancers and then yes. there were you know people who were in the middle who were just kind of bopping around and uh, it was really, truly an intergenerational, and I wasn't feeling terribly social that night, but it would have been easy to talk. Everybody seemed open to to talking and connecting. And so I think this thing about the arts, and then the other thing, of course, is that schools are intergenerational communities, right? I mean, they've got faculty who are all different ages, and then they've got the kids who are, mm -hmm. I mean, especially if we could put them back in mixed age groups or one room, you know, so you had a broader, but then there's all their parents who were another generation and, you know, you could put the arts and the schools together and you could actually get an intergenerational community if people were intentional about it. Totally. Very interesting. So one of the things we were realizing, or some of the people were saying, is that, you know, we've been focused on the difference, which is age, an age difference. But there are other kinds of differences. And if we're talking about homogeneity making us competitive and trying to define our turf, and heterogeneity giving us more room to connect and be mm -hmm. unique and in our relationships, in relationship. So what other kinds of differences do you think, what kind of boundaries would be good to cross in intentional conversations? Because we sure don't have it. Well, I was just down for my um, grandniece's graduation from high school. And it was fascinating to me to watch the struggle that she's going with through, or her generation is going through, trying to define who they are. The, again, you know, I guess it's that option overwhelm of, she's really struggling with gender identity. And so I was talking to her about that, and she said, wow, Uncle Mark, you're the first person that understood what I was saying. And I said, tell me more about that. And she said, well, I talked to people, I tried to talk to mom, I tried to talk to my teachers, and they want to tell me. They don't want to listen to me. They want to tell me who I am or who I should be or what I should do. And I'm so confused about Everybody says I'm this or I'm that, and I don't know, and I don't know how to figure that out. And so the more we sat and talked, she said, okay, this is starting to help me understand how I need to tease this apart. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's, but how much of that is, is ubiquitous across the, 
that age group especially. This It's so interesting listening to you because it's like, okay, given that intergenerational is a given, <laughs> then we can start dealing yeah. with what some of the other issues are, in yeah. this case, gender identity. And that, that it's true. There, there is this abundance of, you know, now it's just, you can be anything you want to be, and what what does that mean? <laughs> what, what do well, I and we mean? used to have access to that, you know, like my grandparents were around, you know, and they weren't shy about offering an opinion. And one of the things that uh, that my octogenarian said was uh, because she was talking to the uh, the Gen Z and saying, "Well, that's the one of the great things that that grandparents and grandchildren have is that they have a common enemy." <laughs> and she said it gives us a, a place that we really meet and go yeah they mm. you know they need help you know and it's tough raising parents and it's you know and and so that there was a it was kind of a fun moment but but it, we all kind of agreed with that that you need that mm -hmm. you know as you were just saying mm -hmm. that validation of going okay i i'm competing with my peers but i'm getting validation by people younger or older than I am that yeah. that support my journey. Totally. And what I heard you say is that listening, being available to listen to someone else's experience from another generation is what unlocks the connection and the sharing and the self-processing. And that was what we practiced at the dinner. And it could have been any other format, technically. I mean, dinner was lovely. Um, but I really took that away. Like, talking to your niece at her graduation party and just listening, be like, tell me more. Like she hadn't had anyone do that yet. Sitting at an intergenerational dinner, it could also be, yeah, if we go out to community events, if we're with our family, if we're with our faith community or a school educational, if you're volunteering, that practice, I think, of listening, especially, obviously we should listen to everyone, but Maybe that's a way we can take this into a bigger part of our lives. Like next time I'm sitting next to someone in the line at the DMV and I know I'm going to be there for an hour or the flight. Excellent example. Yeah, or I'm on the flight or I'm sitting at the airport and I notice like, I bet that person's in another generation. I'm going to to strike up a conversation and just listen. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm going to have a new perspective now of the value of that. Because now I realize that's all it takes really is active, intentional listening. And we have an ability to hold space for each other. But I know, like I said before, I have a different level of comfort talking to someone who's another generation than me, maybe sometimes than my peer, about certain things. There's other things that I probably wouldn't talk to either of you about. I'm like, I'm only going to talk to my peer because I have a shorthand with them and I can... But yeah, that's really what I heard, the listening. Like, we have that ability, every one of us, and it's like a choice we can make. And sometimes it's structured and beautiful like a dinner. And sometimes it's just a moment where we can choose, like, oh, I have some time with another human. I'm going to open an opportunity and hear and share perspective. That's really empowering. Mm -hmm. I love that. There was one... Uh I had a, a Native American baby boomer at my table, and she was talking about, well, she said it was great. One of the things she noticed was looking around, seeing that it wasn't, that she wasn't the only person of color. Mm -hmm. And then later on, she talked about 
how they saw the generations differently in her Navajo culture. And she was saying the code talkers in the Navajo nation were the people who had turned the war around because the Japanese never cracked that code. And yet uh, when they came home, they weren't uh, allowed to vote until like, I, I don't know if she said the 50s or 60s in Utah. Utah is the last state, even though they're the first almost to get women to yeah. vote, they were almost the last to get Native Americans. And this whole notion, uh, and she said, so we saw those people as the silent generation, silenced generation. I think that's what she said, the silenced generation. And it just made me realize that ethnic and cultural groupings, racial ethnic cultural groupings is a big difference that it all intersects with intergenerational, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's like, wow, other groups may actually define the generations very differently, as well as the interactions. Mm -hmm. so, so I think gender identity and racial ethnic identity and I think faith is another yeah. one. I wish we could figure out ways to talk across political identities. I yeah. don't know how we do that, but that seems like... That's the ticket. If we could figure out a way to have an intentional conversation that would allow us to do that, that would be... Or have some leaders step forward that really want to allow and encourage that dialogue and break those down rather than, you know, well, the only way I can get elected is I have to hold staunchly to these small parameters. Mm -hmm. that's, that's disconcerting. Yeah, I have to say I have very little confidence that the leaders are going to be able to do it, yeah. given the way we elect yeah. people. I think it might have to come from the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back to the farmer's market. It all comes back to the farmer's market and, you know, food inequality and food insecurity yeah. and food justice. There we go. But yeah. I, I think the dinner really is a, is a perfect venue for having these types of intergenerational opportunities because there's something about breaking bread together mm -hmm. that you, there's something about sustenance that, that it allows and opens the dialogue, I think. And sitting around a round yeah. table. Mm -hmm. um, we also, you know, the fact that there were six people at each table, you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. eight. Yeah. It wasn't 10. It was... A good number, yes. It was, yeah. It was the right number. I, you, it I was. mean, there's a lot of these details that when it's happening, you don't feel like it's facilitation. Right. But if it were otherwise, yeah. you would feel the lack of... Yeah. Of, of the ease, I think. Well, it's time. We're done. We've done it. So let's clap for ourselves because we were great. Thank you so much. It was so much fun talking to you. In a world full of complex challenges, we need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity.